When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R9, The Flood. It's not clear whether he stripped down stark naked or just loosened his tie, but there's little doubt that George Smith was very excited. He'd thought his find might be important, but couldn't be sure until the baked clay tablet came back from the restorer, with the thick crust of lime expertly removed. And now, well, there it was, plain as day. The year was 1872, and George Smith was the first man in over 2,000 years to read the Mesopotamian version of the Great Flood. His colleague, E.A. Wallace Budge, later wrote that Smith, quote, jumped up and rushed about the room in a great state of excitement, and, to the astonishment of those present, began to undress himself. Again, these are 19th century British scholars, so even if it was just loosening his tie, it was still pretty over the top. So why was the Mesopotamian deluge tablet such a big deal? Well, as we discussed previously, a lot of Near Eastern studies were prompted by an Enlightenment interest in proving the historicity of the Bible. Of course, the general assumption was that Bible history was accurate, and it was mainly a matter of using science to prove what everyone already knew to be true. But in November 1859, this comfortable security was convincingly exploded by the publication of Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Darwin's thesis on the world-shaping power of natural selection provided an alternative to biblical creationism and sparked a debate between science and faith that's still raging today. For those inclined toward biblical truth, the Assyrian excavations of Laird and Rassam, coupled with Rawlinson's translations, had been, well, a godsend, providing at least some solid scientific ground to stand on. Recently, the Assyrian discoveries had been bolstered by another historic find. In August 1868, an Anglican missionary named Frederick Augustus Klein had been shown a stele in Jordan, 
perfectly preserved, around a meter tall, and covered with 34 lines of ancient Semitic writing. Returning to Jerusalem, he mentioned his find to a French diplomat named Charles Simon Clermont Canot. Clermont Canot dispatched a local man named Jakub Karavaka to take a paper mache impression of the Stele's text. This turned out to be easier said than done, since a local Bedouin tribe, the Beni Hamida, considered the Stele private property and wasted no time in attacking Karavaka's party. Luckily, one of Karavaka's companions was able to yank the still-damp papier-mâché mold from the stele in a dozen torn pieces before they made good their escape. As it happened, their timing was insanely fortuitous. Within months, an ownership dispute erupted over the stele between the Beni Hamida and the Ottoman government. Ordered to turn over the stele to the German consulate, the Bedouin instead heated it in a bonfire, threw cold water on it to crack it, then used boulders to break it into pieces. Great, real mature Beni Hamida. Luckily, many pieces were later recovered and, along with Caravaca's papier-mâché squeezes, enabled scholars to reconstruct nearly the entire inscription. The text was written in an extinct Hebrew dialect known as Moabite, using an alphabet derived from Phoenician characters. It was inscribed around 840 BC by the Moabite king Mesha, and, among other things, recorded Moab's earlier oppression by King Omri of Israel and Mesha's subsequent victory over Omri's son. Biblical scholars instantly recognize the parallels to 2 Kings 3, which describes an alliance between King Jehoram of Israel, King Jehoshaphat of Judah, and the king of Edom to put down a rebellion by King Mesha of Moab. The Bible records that after sacrificing his son to the Moabite god Kamosh, Mesha was able to drive out the invaders and emerge victorious. The Mesha stele, or Moabite stone, provided further confirmation of biblical events. But, at least so far, any overlap was limited to the mid-9th century BC onward. Particularly in light of Darwin, it was still an open question whether the most ancient Bible stories, including the creation of the world, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the Great Flood, should be taken as literal truth or just myths and legends passed down from an earlier state of human understanding. George Smith's discovery immediately thrust him into the center of the debate. For the religiously inclined, the Mesopotamian deluge text was pure baked clay corroboration of a seminal biblical event. For skeptics, it was proof that the biblical deluge was only one of several flood stories, all equally legendary and probably equally dubious. In order to get a better understanding of the background of the deluge tablet, we need to start at the very beginning. Seriously, I'm talking about the very beginning, all the way back to Episode 1, The Sumerians, and the Epic of Gilgamesh. 
It's commonly accepted that Gilgamesh was a real king of the very real Mesopotamian city of Uruk, who reigned around 2600 BC. 800 years later, a king of the newly established dynasty of Isin ordered the creation of a Sumerian king's list, in part to bolster his own royal pedigree. Even a casual glance at the list shows the importance of Gilgamesh to the overall chronology. His grandfather, Lugalbanda, was assigned a reign of a thousand years, similar to the enormous lifespan of early biblical figures. Gilgamesh's own son, Urnungal, is recorded as ruling for a far more plausible thirty years, roughly the same duration as his successors. With reigns of just over a century each, Gilgamesh and his father, Demuzid, span the critical gap between legend and history. As an aside, just to quash any doubts they were making up the super-long reigns of the early kings, the Isan scribes covered themselves with insanely precise accounting. For example, the 23 kings of Kish, who ruled before Gilgamesh's line, didn't just reign for around 25,000 years or so. No, they reigned for exactly 24,510 years, three months, and three and a half days. Remember that half day? Yeah, that was awesome. Apart from the epic, which we'll get to in a minute, Gilgamesh is also credited with building, or at least greatly improving, the city walls of Uruk. Excavations at the site have uncovered a major city wall dating from Gilgamesh's day, a six-mile circuit over 20 feet high and protected by battlements. A later king named Amman, ruling around 1900 BC, also recorded that he restored the walls of Uruk, the ancient structure of Gilgamesh. The reason for Gilgamesh's wall upgrade was likely ongoing warfare against the northern city-state of Kish. Inscriptions from Ishtar help me here, Enmerbaragesi, king of Kish, have been dated to around 2750 BC, and his place in the king's list, just before power shifted to Uruk, helps to date Gilgamesh's reign. There are also early texts recording the triumph of Gilgamesh's father, Demuzid, over Enmebaragesi in battle. So, we know that Gilgamesh ruled during an important transition from the dominance of Kish to the dominance of Uruk. But even more important to his lasting fame was that Gilgamesh ruled at the exact time when Sumerian scribes were branching out from their traditional role of keeping detailed tallies of goods and beginning to compose creative works of history and legend. Previous kings may have also captured enemy cities, improved irrigation, and built great monuments— but they didn't have the advantage of living in what was soon to be the world's first great center of writing. Within a few centuries of Gilgamesh's death, written stories had begun circulating about Gilgamesh's grandfather Lugalbanda and his great-grandfather Enmerkar. In fact, Enmerkar was credited with inventing the very first inscribed clay tablet which he sent to the enemy king of distant Arata. 
The almost mystical power of inscribed writing was captured in the story. The Lord of Arata looked at the kiln-fired clay. The words were fierce words. Frowning, the Lord of Arata kept looking at his piece of clay. For a long time, written texts remained fairly rare, and most stories continued to be passed down through oral tradition. It wasn't until the Third Dynasty of Ur, around 2100 BC, that King Shulgi became the first royal patron of Sumerian poetry. Of course, most of the poetry was dedicated to praising King Shulgi, but Fortunately for us, Shulgi was also obsessed with the stories of King Gilgamesh. It was Shulgi who first ordered court scribes to write down the series of five Sumerian poems that would later be compiled into the Epic of Gilgamesh. By Shulgi's time, these poems had already been floating around for centuries, and it's tough to say how much was transcribed versus how much was created. But Either way, the Gilgamesh stories that we know today are mainly the product of Shulgi's efforts. The next critical link in the chain was made around 1700 BC, possibly during the rule of the great Amorite king Hammurabi. At this time, the five Sumerian poems were first translated into Akkadian and given the form of an extended epic. This version became known as the Old Babylonian version. 500 years later, with Babylonia under Kassite rule, a priest named Sinleke Unini revised and elaborated on the Old Babylonian version to create what we now call the Standard Version. Two major changes made by Sinleke Unini were the addition of a prologue introducing both Gilgamesh and Uruk, and, critically for our discussion, the first inclusion of the Flood story. Floods had always been a pretty big deal in Mesopotamia. In fact, Sumerian history was believed to have begun with the city of Eridu, which started as a single temple on a speck of dry land rising from the floodwaters. With Sumerian cities built mostly of mud brick and local river courses frequently changing, it's easy to conjure the origins of a mythic flood story. The devastating impact of regional flooding also echoes in the words of later Assyrian conquerors, like Sennacherib, who boasted of making Babylon's destruction more complete than by a flood. The flood story inserted by Sinleke Unini came from an earlier poem called the Atrahasis Epic. In a more guilt-free alternative to the Bible, the Mesopotamian flood was apparently caused not by anything as grim or unforgivable as human sin, but mainly because humans were just too darn noisy and the gods were having trouble sleeping. The supreme Sumerian god Enlil decides to solve the problem by sending down a great flood. But not all the gods are on board with his plan. Ea tells one of his worshippers, a man named Utanapishtim, to build an ark, take on board as many animals as possible, and get ready for a week of seriously bad weather. 
On the seventh day, the ark comes to rest on a mountaintop. Utanapishtim sends out birds to reconnoiter, and then begins the long, slow process of rebuilding human civilization. And it goes without saying that, storm duration notwithstanding, we're covering pretty familiar territory here. Following its creation by Sinlekeonini, the standard version of the epic, including the flood story, was copied and disseminated throughout Mesopotamia. As the Bronze Age collapse rippled across the region, the Kassites fell to the neighboring Elamites, who fell in turn to the resurgent Akkadians. Meanwhile, desert tribes like the Aramaeans and Chaldeans came flooding into the cities and countryside. Despite the chaos and instability swirling all around them, the scribes of Babylonia kept calm and carried on copying, transcribing, and preserving whatever they could. By the time they looked back up from their work, the Neo-Assyrians were in charge, which really didn't have much impact on the scribes until Ashurbanipal became king. I spent a lot of time covering Ashurbanipal in the previous series. One defining aspect of his early years was his broad-based education, including learning how to read and write both Akkadian and Sumerian. By Ashurbanipal's time, the Epic of Gilgamesh was a pretty familiar text, which was only logical since the Akkadian version was already a thousand years old and the Sumerian poems were much older than that. It's a sure bet that at least one version, and probably both, were on the young prince's reading list. As previously discussed, Ashurbanipal's later years were spent assembling a vast library of Mesopotamian history and culture, including all the great literary works. While fragments of the Epic of Gilgamesh were later found at a number of sites, only Ashurbanipal's library contained several virtually complete texts. Some were collected from across Mesopotamia, some were copied by his royal scribes, and at least one was obtained from Babylon when Ashurbanipal conquered the city to crush the rebellion of his older brother. When Nineveh also fell a few decades later, the burning, raising, and burying of the Assyrian capital helped preserve Ashurbanipal's library for the next 2,500 years. Of course, the fall of Nineveh didn't mean the immediate loss of the epic. The rapid expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire during the 9th and 8th centuries BC had brought Mesopotamian culture in its wake and fragments of the Epic of Gilgamesh were later found in both the Levantine city of Megiddo, near Jerusalem, and in the Hittite archives of Anatolia. It's also worth noting that interesting connections can be made between the Epic and two far more famous works, the Hebrew Bible and Homer's Iliad. The early books of the Bible are thought to have been compiled during the Babylonian captivity, only a few decades after Nineveh's fall. With Babylon still a major cultural center, it's easy to see how Gilgamesh's version of the Deluge could have easily influenced the biblical tale of Noah's Ark. 
At the same time that the Neo-Assyrian Empire was expanding, Greek culture was entering its archaic orientalizing period, characterized by an influx of Near Eastern art and ideas. I previously mentioned how Babylonian creation myths, like the Enuma Elish, were apparently known to Homer's contemporary Hesiod, and likely influenced his theogony. Similarly, the Epic of Gilgamesh was probably also familiar to the Greek poets of Anatolia, and some elements could have easily found their way into the Trojan War cycle. But for now, let's leave speculation aside and return to the meat of the story. Influences on other works notwithstanding, the Epic of Gilgamesh itself was probably lost around the time that Akkadian gave way to Aramaic during the last few centuries BC. There are no references to the Epic between this time and Laird and Rassam's rediscovery of Assyria in the 19th century AD. Even then, the twelve fragments, making up a copy of the standard version, were mixed in among a hundred thousand other fragments recovered from Ashurbanipal's library. At the British Museum, these fragments were stored in crates or drawers until one of the very few dedicated scholars on staff got around to giving them a look. In fact, the head of the Department of Oriental Antiquities, Dr. Samuel Birch, was an Egyptologist by trade. This meant that the Mesopotamian finds were delegated to his assistant, William Henry Cox, who'd only started studying Akkadian after joining the museum staff. Very fortunately, the museum was also frequently visited by the world's most eminent cuneiform scholar, Sir Henry Creswick Rawlinson. Despite Rawlinson's help, the huge volume of tablets meant a huge backlog of translations. For this reason, the museum also accepted help from individuals with interest, ability, and a bit of free time, particularly if it didn't have to pay them. As it turned out, George Smith met all these qualifications. Born in 1840 to a family of unskilled laborers, Smith was apprenticed to a printer in his teens and soon became a talented engraver. In 1860, at the age of 20, Smith began coming to the museum regularly on his lunch hour. Motivated by an interest in the Bible, Smith had recently been studying cuneiform, and was eager to examine the tablets recovered from Nineveh. At first, Birch and Cox weren't thrilled by the working-class lad putting his grubby mitts all over their precious tablets, until it became apparent that Smith knew Akkadian much better than either of them. It wasn't long before Birch introduced Smith to Rawlinson himself, who'd just returned to London after a brief stint as British envoy to Persia. Rawlinson immediately recognized Smith's acuity at piecing together tablet fragments and convinced the museum to hire him for this purpose. While this continued to be his main responsibility, Smith also spent time working on the actual translations. By the mid-1860s, Smith had made several minor discoveries, but his real reward came in 1867, 
When Rawlinson hired him to help draft the next volume of his book series, Cuneiform Inscriptions of Western Asia. Three years later, when Cox passed away, Smith succeeded him as senior assistant in the museum's Department of Assyriology. While Smith found the work gratifying, he also became preoccupied with the prospect of traveling to the Near East, maybe even following in the footsteps of Rawlinson or Laird. Smith knew that his most likely ticket would be to make a genuinely historic find. With luck, something that would both excite public interest and justify additional investigations abroad. In late 1872, after nine months of dedicated searching, Smith finally found a text virtually tailor-made to his purpose. Not only did the discovery of the flood tablet make Smith an overnight sensation, and not only did its subject matter strike at the very heart of post-Darwinian debate, but there was even one major piece of the tablet that was conveniently missing. Score. Oh, wait, I mean, that sucks. Hey, if you guys want me to, you know, go to Nineveh and see if I can turn it up, it's really no problem. I could totally free up, I don't know, the next year or two, or, you know, whatever. Although museum funding remained stubbornly elusive, Smith was soon approached by another interested party, the editor of the Daily Telegraph, Edwin Arnold. Recognizing the human interest potential, Arnold offered Smith a thousand British pounds to go search for the missing fragment of the flood tablet. In less than a month, Smith was on his way. The only problem was, despite his ambitions, Smith was totally unprepared for a Near Eastern expedition. He spoke no local languages and had little patience with the logistical difficulties and other hardships that such a trip naturally entailed. Smith clearly seemed overwhelmed by the dirt, crowds, and noise that he encountered everywhere he went. To sum up, he didn't like the food, wasn't fond of the people, and don't even ask him about the accommodation. Smith did like the landscape, though, especially as he finally approached the object of his quest. Smith arrived at Nineveh in March 1873. The huge mound of Kuyunjik was everything he'd hoped for. Ancient, evocative, and, most importantly, full of potential for further exploration. Smith knew that Laird and Rassam had never finished excavating Ashurbanipal's North Palace, where the flood tablet had been found. Smith also knew that his own task was nearly impossible. He was looking for a three-inch square piece in the middle of several tons of accumulated rubble. But that was actually fine with him. With the newspaper funding, he could resume investigating the site, and who knew what he'd come across? A few interesting finds, and even the British Museum might kick in some funding. Smith hired local workers and began digging in the North Palace on May 7, 1873. A week later, he'd found the missing piece. It contained 17 lines of the deluge text and pretty much filled the only serious gap in the story. It was exactly what he'd come for, and Smith couldn't have been more disappointed. 
Despite his arguments that there was still plenty of important work to do, the newspaper had its scoop, and Smith was immediately recalled to London. The story of his miraculous find was huge news. It earned Smith widespread popularity, speaking engagements, and, most happily, British Museum funding for another expedition. Since his current permission to dig would soon expire, Smith made quick arrangements for a second trip to Nineveh in November 1873. This time, Smith built a house near the ruins, hired an English cook, and began living the life of a privileged expat. While his digs were generally successful, Smith's Achilles heel continued to be his relations with local officials, who never really got the historical value of ancient tablets and suspected that Smith was really hunting for buried treasure. When the local pasha seized half of his fines, expecting a bribe for their return, Smith stood firm on principle and refused. The ensuing standoff was still in effect when Smith returned to England. In 1874, Smith turned his attention to completing his translation of the Epic of Gilgamesh. To maximize public appeal, Smith published the work as the Chaldean account of the Deluge, even though the Flood is a small part of the overall epic. 1875 saw him publish no less than four additional books, on both his translations and his excavations. Over a fairly brief period, Smith had gone from enthusiastic amateur to presumptive successor to Rawlinson. It was all pretty heady stuff, and when the museum asked him to lead a third expedition, he saw no reason to refuse. Unfortunately, he really, really should have refused. This time, Smith was partnered with a Scandinavian archaeologist named Enneberg. From the moment they arrived in Istanbul, the pair was subjected to huge delays. At least some of the blame lay with Smith's books, in which he'd been pretty free with his criticism of Ottoman officials. By the time they were allowed to move on, their route had become problematic. During a stopover in Aleppo, Smith wrote to his wife Mary that the plague is sweeping part of the very district I ought to visit. However, he still felt compelled to forge ahead to Mosul and hope for the best. The best was not what he got. His colleague Enneberg was struck down with cholera and died on the way to Baghdad. Smith continued on to Mosul, where he was held up by more red tape. By the time he cleared these hurdles, it was already July, and much too hot to dig. After collecting a few meager fines, Smith decided to return home. Since travel by boat would entail a lengthy quarantine, he decided to go overland instead. Smith likely knew he was in a precarious position. On the plus side, he was a young man with a good constitution and was savvy enough to travel by night to avoid the worst of the heat. On the downside, summer was a brutal time for overland travel regardless, and both cholera and dysentery were still ravaging the countryside. 
In August 1876, Smith became sick and was forced to take shelter in a small Syrian village called Ikisji. With some assistance, Smith managed to complete the 40-mile journey to Aleppo, but succumbed to dysentery shortly after his arrival. Less than four years had passed since he'd first seen the flood tablet that had brought him instant fame. But Smith's biggest legacy would be his translation of the overall epic. It would take decades to reach a wider audience, and even more to make its way into popular culture. One of the epic's best-known advocates was the early 20th century poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Rilke famously enthused that Gilgamesh is stupendous. I consider it to be among the greatest things that can happen to a person. Since Rilke's time, the Epic of Gilgamesh has been the subject of several modern translations, of which Stephen Mitchell's is my personal favorite. The Epic's characters and themes have also found their way into most branches of modern media. Music, theater, movies, comics, even video games. Of course, for the Trekkies out there, there's the Next Generation episode, Darmok, in which Captain Picard tells the story of Gilgamesh to a dying alien. And, last but not least, in 2000 AD, the Epic of Gilgamesh was finally translated into Klingon, which I'm sure we'll see it safely into the foreseeable future. Next episode won't be for a little while. For the next few weeks, I'll be taking the equivalent of a summer vacation to celebrate my wife's birthday and otherwise relax and unwind a bit. When I return, we'll move into the 20th century and cover the remaining discoveries I wanted to talk about. Meanwhile, if you'd like to help get the word out, please stop by and review the series on iTunes. It's probably the easiest way to have a big positive impact on the show's success. Also, please keep spreading the word on social media, history forums, all that jazz. And, of course, I'm always happy to hear from you on the blog, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all next time on The Ancient World Rediscovery.